You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. The relationship between the media and the Trump administration has been the subject of much attention inside and outside the Beltway. My guest today, Major Garrett, is CBS News' chief White House correspondent and the author of Mr. Trump's Wild Ride, The Thrills, Chills, Screams, and Occasional Blackouts of an Extraordinary Presidency. While there have been several books written about President Trump's first two years in office, I am not aware of another that has focused to this extent on the administration's impact across so many policy areas, including the judicial, tax, health, and foreign policy. And having served as White House correspondent for the last four administrations, Major has had a unique perch for his observations. And I suspect, Major, it is safe to say that in covering the Trump White House, you've experienced thrills, chills, (laughs) and maybe even an occasional blackout. Great to have you with us. Yes, happily, no blackouts on the air, at least not yet. In your book, you really have taken a different approach. As I mentioned, so many books have been written from the inside and been quite critical. And of course, Bob Woodward's book, but you really took more of a long-term look at the administration. I decided early on that the celebrity factor, the tattletale factor of the Trump administration was going to be very high. And there were gonna be a lot of books written by people reveling in either the celebrity or tattletale side of the Trump administration. Like, okay, that lane's pretty clogged. Well, uh, we all know what we do and there's a traffic jam, we try to avoid it. We find another lane, another path. So what I really wanted to do was acknowledge the intense emotional reaction to this presidency. Our country, I get it all the time, people have either deeply favorable impressions of this president, love him that way they've loved no other president, feel attached to him in a way they felt no attachment to no other president, or revile him in ways they've never reviled the president or the presidency before. I'm like, okay, well, that's certainly a factor we're all living through. But does that mean nothing's happening? Does all this emotion blot out things going on? No, it doesn't. Things actually happen. And there are insider accounts in the book. There are things that this book has, interviews, developing stories that no one's ever reported before, but they're on the policy side of the spectrum, not the tattletale side of the spectrum. So they get less attention and there are fewer book sales, I must be candid. But I anticipated that all along. I figured this book will be for the long run. It will not fly off the bookshelves, it hasn't. But it will have a long and happy shelf life for political scientists, historians, and people who are trying to, at some point, step back from the emotionalism and actually ask what happened. Well, let's talk about a few of the instances, and one was Mitch McConnell's decision to postpone filling the Supreme Court vacancy left by Antonio Scalia. So that decision is one of the parts of the book that you can't read anywhere else. I had an exclusive interview with Mitch McConnell. He walked me through that moment when he got the news on vacation with his wife, current Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao, and instantly decided... I'm not going to have that process move forward. Meaning, forget what the vote outcome would be. There wasn't even going to be a hearing for whomever President Obama nominated. That was a startling sort of decision. And it coincided with a prioritization in the 2016 campaign of what is the future of the Supreme Court. Coincidentally, Donald Trump, the candidate, is making another calculation. Republicans don't know who he is, uncertain what he might bring to the office, What's one potential clincher for these uncertain Republicans? The future of the Supreme Court. So he develops a list 
of potential nominees later on in the campaign, but he comes up with it. Who developed the list? So the list is the idea of Donald Trump, the candidate. I want a list. The names on it come from the Federalist Society, a guy named Leonard Leo, who I describe in great detail in the book. A fixture in Washington for a long time, not a household name in America, but among the most important people who will be part of the reshaped federal judiciary on President Trump's watch. All of that is delved into, and I think, kind of convincing, interesting narrative about this vitally important aspect of the Trump legacy, how it got started, who made the decisions, who put the names on the list, and the overall importance politically of that list when undecided or, yeah, am I going to be Trump or not? Republicans, what pushed them over? Future of the Supreme Court. Okay, so now in the first few years of his administration, he's filled two positions. On the Supreme Court. What else has he done this, in, the, in the judicial this branch? This week will be the Senate confirmation of the 100th Trump-nominated federal judge. That's appellate courts and district courts. So it's not a remaking of the federal judiciary, but it is an intense population of that federal judiciary by what the president would describe as, and conservatives who very much are in favor of this initiative would call strict constructionist type jurists, who look at the founding documents and don't believe the Constitution is a living, breathing document. They believe it means what it says and nothing more. And that is going to be visited upon federal cases brought before the judiciary at lots of different levels for the next two or three, if not four decades. I think that's really interesting because obviously we're the World Affairs Council and all we hear is how the State Department is not getting positions filled, even nominated and then not approved, and yet that's not the case with the judicial branch. Because the President and his former White House counsel, Don McGahn, and the Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, prioritized this from day one. Not only of the inauguration, meaning setting it in motion, but had prioritized it in a sophisticated way far more sophisticated than almost any other policy or initiative during the transition. So they knew what they were doing, they knew why they wanted to do it, and they knew how to get it done. So how many presidents have you covered? I've covered five presidential campaigns, meaning being on the road, endlessly covering that whole process, and four presidencies. I covered the George Herbert Walker Bush presidency from the vantage point of Congress, so I wasn't at the White House, even on a routine, day-to-day -day basis. I did all of that from Congress, so if you count that, five, but as a White House correspondent, four. So we know this one, we read unconventional all the time. Sure. What are the main differences? The, the central difference, one is policy and an approach to policy, one is politics and the approach to politics. I'll take them in reverse order. On politics, every other American president wondered how much from Inauguration Day or during the campaign he could enlarge his political faction or political support and would wonder about any wavering in that political support. I come in with 60 or 65 or 47 or whatever the number is, I want to build it and I don't want it to shrink. That was something that was on every president's mind at some level. Decisions were made in reference to how those numbers fluctuated sometimes. This president has completely turned that upside down and says I'm coming in with 44 and I'm staying there and I don't care about moving from 45 to 55 or 50, I don't care. I'm staying at 45, that's it. So you know what, I don't worry. I don't sweat the polls. I know what they're gonna be. And he's right, they literally have not budged since Inauguration Day, except maybe a factor of three or four points, which are essentially, statistically, margins of error. He doesn't care. And nothing about his administration 
feeds off that data the way every other modern American presidency did. On policy, the other thing that's so striking is it's all him. When he says it's all me, he means it. It's all him. What he says and does, and his mind can change, his mind can be changed, but there are not significant people who move policy independent of this president. That means there are fewer priorities, lots of things just sort of sit out there and kind of cook at a low level, but the things he cares about, he drives and drives relentlessly. Thus the high number of acting secretaries. And acting is a joke now in the administration. Everyone's acting. Even if you're confirmed, you're just acting. So in your book, you wrote this, Trump has no sense of time. Trump either lives in the moment or in his memory. Nothing can shake Trump from his reaction to the moment or how his memory recalls events. Mm -hmm. How dangerous is that? People wonder about that. They think it's potentially very dangerous, and yet it hasn't been dangerous so far. People were a little unnerved, understandably, during the very intense rhetoric with North Korea back in the summer of 2017. Well, guess what? We've landed where we were with every other previous president on that score. The negotiations are hard. The differences are vast. The North Koreans are slow. The pressure to apply from China and others is intermittent and unsatisfactory. That's where every previous American president found the North Korea issue. President Trump found a different way to get there, but that's where he's at now. But that rhetoric sounded very scary, had people very nervous. Nothing really bad happened. Matter of fact, there were two summits, there was engagement. I often tell people, take Trump's name out of it. Just look at what's happened. Would you be generally satisfied with that? More than not, I get the answer, well, yeah, if I take Trump's name out of it. So this idea of his memory and his moment, how he feels something or experiences something in the moment, is deeply rooted in his own set of gut instincts. He trusts them implicitly, and so far, the damage is hard to find. Well, let's talk about something that is certainly different and unconventional, is how he reaches the American public by bypassing you and your colleagues, his Twitter account. Sure. And you spoke to Newt Gingrich about it. I'm sure you've spoken to a lot of others. Oh, yeah. Gingrich said part of it is genius because he's at a margin where he can't let anybody edit him. Right. I discovered this during the campaign, more than 75 Trump rallies. There is a, and was, and still is, a craving for something that is verifiably authentic. And most politicians of the modern era became masters of manufactured authenticity, things that sounded real and authentic but actually weren't. They were very highly processed internally and then presented to the public as a rough and rugged authenticity. Well, Trump's authenticity is there for all the world to see. It is rough and tumble. It is sometimes spontaneous, it is sometimes wildly contradictory, it is sometimes almost impossible to follow in an illogical frame of mind when you listen to him. And that tells his supporters it's all real. And real for them is better, even if it's unnerving in its realness, even if it's exhausting in its ever-presentness. They'll take it because that authentic nature of Trump tells them He's what he always was, and that's their biggest fear, that somehow Washington will change him, will sand down these rough edges. And the rougher he is in Washington, the more his supporters say, aha, he's the same guy. Washington's not getting to him. 
That's something I think the political class in Washington is still trying to comprehend. How has your job changed in that you don't have the daily press meetings? Yeah, it's diminished in that sense. And I think it's also highly defensive. The one thing I'm astonished by is the White House's decision not to have daily briefings because daily briefings are the public's way of getting lots of different questions asked and answered. And if you're the administration right now, why don't you have a briefing every day and open it with a ream of economic statistics? Just ram them down our throat and by definition the public's throat through the power of the bully pulpit. Why not do that? And so why don't they? I don't know. I literally don't. I think Sarah doesn't like them, Sarah Sanders. The president thinks he's better at it anyway. Well, she's a punching bag when she's up there. Sure, but every press secretary is. But if you've got a story to tell, that's a very good way to tell it. And I think the public loses something in the process. And the administration looks, I don't think, as fulsome as it could. It looks defensive. When you're not answering questions, or only answering a few, and it's in a sort of a very abbreviated format, as we sometimes do in these chance encounters on the driveways, when they come and do a live shot for Fox News or something, that's not full engagement. And it, feel, it feels and strikes me as curiously, and I would also submit needlessly defensive. Now, I wanted to get your sense of how you see your profession evolving. Mm -hmm. Today is World Press Freedom Day. Sure. Evolving is a format and business question. Where does our journalism land? It lands less and less persuasively and from a commercial point of view, valuably on print. It just does. Magazines, newspapers, they're all very stressed out economically. That doesn't mean print is dead. It just means on paper, it's having a very hard time commercially. Digitally, it has great future. And the business model and the, the great, most important question that journalism has to ask and then answer is, what is the price point of portability? What will people pay for the luxury of being well-informed everywhere they go at a moment's notice? What are they willing to pay for that? Our problem in the industry is we're very, very late to that question because there's an entire generation of Americans. I have three children who are dead in the middle of this generation who have been taught that journalism is or ought to be free. It is not. It costs money. It costs a lot of money. Good reporting is expensive. It's hard work. When it's done well, it can change the world. You don't change the world for free. I want to thank you very much for being my guest on Global IQ Minute. And, and let me really suggest to our listeners that they pick up a copy of Mr. Trump's Wild Ride. I've read major almost every book, all the tell-all books that have come out. But what I enjoyed about your book is how you broke it into different chapters on North Korea, healthcare, the Supreme Court, yeah. immigration. I learned a lot, and I know our listeners will too. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.